No doubt you've heard the story of the rich man and Lazarus on a number of occasions. It's often called Dives and Lazarus. And it's a story that is unique to the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels in your New Testament. And indeed, it's probably a story that's very familiar to you. Do you know why it's called Dives and Lazarus, though? If you, look up, if you look up art or history or any type of thing like that, it's often called Dives and Lazarus. And that's only because Dives in Latin means rich man. And since he doesn't have a name, that's been the traditional name that's applied to the rich man in our text, Dives, for whatever reason. So take that for what it's worth. But anyways, regardless, you're likely familiar with all these beats of the story that we just went through. There were once two men, one incredibly rich and one incredibly poor, and they both die, and they both enter into eternity. Except the rich man enters into an eternity of torment, while the poor man enters into an eternity of comfort. And the tormented man converses with one father, Abraham, who suddenly denies him any amount of relief. And the story closes with this ominous sort of thud that even the brothers of that rich man who's now being tormented constantly, that they wouldn't even believe, as Abraham says, even if someone should rise from the dead, thereby all but sealing their fate too. That they're facing an eternity of torment. That's, in a nutshell, the story of Dives and Lazarus. And make no mistake, though, there's no shortage of ways to interpret or to understand this story. We aren't lacking in that department. There's all kinds of theories abounding about this particular text. And in many ways, though, I feel, as I've studied and prayed and and actually had conversations, that I think that we often let some of the finer details of this particular story distract us from the meaning that should slap us across the face. For example, we can really easily get sidetracked trying to figure out whether or not these two men were real historical figures or if they're just characters in a story. We can get distracted, I think, by trying to figure out whether Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side was a real place or whether it was just a figure of speech that the Lord employs. Or we can get distracted by trying to figure out whether the story is meant to give us some sort of geography or or layout of the underworld, of the afterlife, or if its locations are just there for storytelling purposes. Tons of ink has been spilled trying to explain all those things, all of those mysteries. And yet, for all of the books that I've consulted and many others have consulted, I think we are nowhere closer to having some sort of some definitive rendering of the story. And in fact, if you read it, most interpretations fall into one of two camps. You read the story and some interpret it historically. That is, that Jesus is telling a story about two men who really existed, who were perhaps neighbors of some of those who were in the audience that day. Oh, Lazarus from down the street. I remember that guy. Another, another view is to interpret this story somewhat metaphorically, as if it's nothing more than another of Jesus' parables. And in fact, that is a long-standing historical way to view the story. It's a parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Those who argue that it's a real story 
about two men who really existed, mostly do that on the basis of the name of the poor man, Lazarus. Because the fact is, no other parable in the New Testament has someone with a name. Jesus never gives a name to any of his characters in any of the other parables. Instead, he tells his parables, he tells the stories that you're perhaps very familiar with. With just nameless figures, archetypes, illustrations. And each of those characters, of course, are meant to be very applicable to whoever might have been in the audience that day. That's why they're nameless. It's meant to apply to the people who are right in front of him. Of course, the historical interpretation, I think, comes with a number of obstacles, hurdles that you have to get over. Just as you have to make sense of Hades or Abraham's bosom. Abraham's side. Are, are these two distinct places or are they two rooms in the same place? And does this confirm, because Jesus is talking about this, what the afterlife looked like before Jesus rose from the dead? And if Abraham's bosom is a real place, why isn't it ever mentioned again? Those are just some of the questions that you would have to hurdle over. The other argument, of course, to say that this is just one of Jesus' parables This kind of gets around all of that sort of obstacles of the underworld by just saying it's it's a metaphor. It's an illustration that Jesus is using to draw out a certain truth. But of course, this view isn't without issues either. Mostly, this guy has a name. Again, no other person has a name in any of Jesus' parables. For whatever it's worth, and I don't, if you don't want my opinion, that's fine. But my opinion, my view is I tend to side with the persuasion that this is a parable. That this is a parabolic story that just so happens to feature a poor man who Jesus names Nazareth. Not because there was a specific Nazareth from down on the corner that he is referencing. But because, as I take it, everyone in that audience had a Lazarus, so to speak, of their own. In their own neighborhood. Lazarus was a very common name in that day in the first century. It'll be similar to calling someone John Doe. And it simply just means, the name means literally one whom God helps. And file that away for later. But regardless, I'm not here this morning to convince you that my opinion is the correct one. That you have to understand this as a parable. If you disagree, actually, I think that's fine and I'm okay with that. And I'll even go further to say that I do not even think that ultimately it matters for the point of the story, whether you interpret this historically or whether you interpret it as a parable. In fact, I would assert that Jesus' point by telling the story functions exactly the same either way. And to explain what I mean, I think it would be best if we strip down the story to its barest bones. Because again, I think this will help us grasp what Jesus was trying to convey and trying to get those in the audience that day to see and to grasp and to understand. Again, the bullet points of the story. Two men. One rich, one one poor. They had entirely different experiences in life. You could not draw a wider chasm between these two men. One was incredibly wealthy, the other incredibly poor. And yet, at the same time, almost the idea is in Jesus' story that they both died uh, near each other or on the same day even. And And that's the point. They both end up with the same exact fate. They both pass away. 
Regardless of their status or their standing or how much wealth that they had or how little wealth they had, they both end up entering into eternity in the same exact manner. Only, but as Jesus reveals through his story, their experience of death is just as different as their experience in life. The rich man is made, as it says, to suffer torment And anguish, as he says, as he confesses, as he talks to Father Abraham. I'm in anguish. I'm burning. Just give me the smallest drop of water to cool my tongue. He is desperate for the smallest amount of relief. While the poor man, with this image of being brought to Abraham's side, is comforted. He is consoled. He finds his place with the covenant father, Abraham. And you see the reason, the reason why both of these men had different experiences is the reason this story exists. That's the heart of the story. Let's back up though, because I think it's important to keep in mind who Jesus is addressing when he begins to tell this story. It's important to keep, of course, the context in mind, what we find here. Of course, if you go back to chapter 15, that's the famous, the sort of lauded chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke that has the the trio of stories of lost things. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And he's telling these parables, of course, let me back up. Go back and listen to who he's telling them to. Uh, Luke 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and sinners, they, they started to gather around him. They were all drawing near to him. And notice, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Of course, that's a really important key to understanding why Jesus is telling these parables of lost things. He's telling them because there's Pharisees in the midst, and they're trying to ridicule Jesus for entertaining people like sinners and tax collectors. And those who are perhaps the marginalized and the ostracized of society. And Jesus is saying, that's precisely to whom I am come. And I'm not going to try and preach that, although I would love to. But he moves, he segues throughout that whole chapter. Talking about lost things. And he tells the story at the beginning of chapter 16 of the dishonest manager. The dishonest businessman, so to speak. He ends that parable, notice in verse 13, where he says, No servant, Luke 16, 13, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot, you cannot serve God and money. And then we're told, notice verse 14, that the Pharisees, they're still hanging around. They're still hanging out. Who were lovers of money, it says. Heard all these things. And they ridiculed him. The Pharisees overhear the story too. They overhear this teaching too about this, this dishonest businessman who is in love with money more than anything else. And they start to openly, publicly mock Jesus, make fun of Jesus. They start laughing at him and his disciples. And while they are doing so, that's when Jesus turns. And instead of just addressing the crowd generally, he turns and directs them directly. Notice. And he said to them, the Pharisees, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Talk about a statement. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What's he saying here? Essentially what he's doing is he's putting them on blast for being the entitled high-minded guys that they are. The Pharisees, of course, are these religious experts who are self-righteous. As he says there, he points out, you justify yourselves before men. All the while Jesus knows their hearts as he therefore declares that God does too. You're worried about your appearances when God knows your hearts. And what's in their heart? As he says, verse 14, they were lovers of money. Essentially, Jesus is once again putting them on blast for their hypocrisy. These men who carried themselves and conducted themselves as religious men, men who are of the faith, men who were devoted to the things of the Lord. Instead, their hearts are full Of iniquity and sin. The Pharisees of course would never be ones to admit that they were lovers of money. But their hearts would say something else. And that's sort of the point. Outwardly the Pharisees had had carefully crafted a reputation. As being those who are authoritative. Those who are experts on the law. On all matters of religion and morality. They had become sort of God's entitled elite followers. But inwardly. Pharisees were full of excess and greed and all uncleanness. And in fact, you don't have to turn there, but if you want Jesus' true uh, sort of uh, referendum of the Pharisees, Matthew 23, verse 27, those infamous words of Jesus to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's Jesus' estimation. Those are his words of those to whom he is addressing. And indeed, he's essentially saying the same thing in this passage. You're justifying yourself before men when God knows what's in your heart. And to explain what he means by that, that's when he goes into the story. Because as as clean as the Pharisees looked, as clean and polished as they might have appeared in the eyes of their neighbors, in the eyes of other people that were around them in that society, God knew what was living in their hearts. Their hearts were full. It was a wasteland in their heart, full of irreligion and unfaith. And that's why God tells the story. Once upon a time, there was a rich man. Who had everything anyone could ever want. He was a rich man who lived in constant luxury. and constant evidence of wealth. He wore the finest clothes. Imported from overseas. He ate the finest meals. And his daily life was never not lavish. As it says in 16 verse number 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And who feasted sumptuously every day. The life of luxury, that's what he lived. But make no mistake, his problem wasn't his wealth. 
I think the key point to remember is the fact that Jesus never comments on the idea that this guy had an eight-figure bank account and that's the problem. An important note to keep in mind, he never says that he got his wealth from some sort of immoral means or some sort of uh, sort of seedy avenue, something like that. This is a man who, by all accounts, just is wealthy. And we're greeted with that blunt fact. His problem goes way deeper than having a seven-figure bankroll, as we'll see. Because just outside this rich man's mansion lived another man, Lazarus, as you know, who was very poor. How poor was he? Well, his body, as he says, was covered in sores, ulcers, open wounds. And his diet was what? Nothing but the scraps that fell from off of the rich man's table. So the things that the rich man would eat and then not partake of and he would bring out to the dumpster, those are the things that he was living off of. The leftovers, the refuse from the rich man's feasting table. And his only friends, as it says there in, the, in verse number 21, were the dogs. That it says they came to lick his sores. In every which way, no matter how you looked at it, Lazarus was a poor man. As poor as poor could be. Pitiful, penniless, and forgotten. In fact, he that's sort of what it means when it says the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Because there was no one else to even see him pass away. It doesn't mention his burial. Which is interesting because in verse 22 it does for the rich man. As it says, the rich man also died and was buried. The image is meant to draw out this contrast, whereas the, the poor man who is sitting outside the gate just dies right in the street without any second thought of anyone passing by. Whereas the rich man, he passes away and there's a massive funeral held in his honor with guests from everywhere coming in order to honor his life and perhaps hoping that they made it onto the will, something like that. That's sort of the image that at least comes to my mind. <laughs> Well, wherever the case, the point that Jesus is trying to get into the, the minds of everyone listening, but especially the Pharisees that were in the audience, that both of these men are dead. And their lives could not look any more different, as we already noted. But in the end, they both passed away. They both left this world behind, this world of reality, this world of material things. They left it behind, and they entered into eternity. And once there, though, that's where things go back to looking different because their fortunes get entirely reversed. The poor man is ushered into eternity of relief and comfort as he stands side by side with Father Abraham and all of the saints of old. Whereas the rich man, he enters into an eternity of torment and anguish. Notice verse 23 again. And in Hades, the rich man, or excuse me, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off in Lazarus at his side. And he called out. As lavish, as luxurious, as, as, as awesome as perhaps we might imagine his life was, that rich man 
His afterlife was full of misery and pain and constant anguish. When he closed his eyes, that rich man closed his eyes in death here on this earth. And as Jesus is trying to convey, he opened his eyes to an eternal death. That's the point. As he looked around... And he saw what had occurred and what had become of his life. Now that he was in eternity, he is now finding himself in the place of the dead, which is what Hades literally means. And he calls out to Abraham Lazarus, who he sees at a distance. And he calls out to Father Abraham, please just have a scrap of mercy for me. I'm desperate for even just the smallest sliver of kindness you can show. And he called out, verse 24, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. You see what's occurred? The rich man has now become the beggar. And his only hope was for a scrap of mercy. A scrap of water. The smallest little drop to cool his tongue. And yet Abraham denies him. Verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. You had your chance, Abraham says. You had your opportunity, you enjoyed your relief and your comfort during your life while Lazarus had nothing. Nothing can be done now. Abraham's reply, it sounds harsh, it sounds almost starkly vindictive, even though it's not, it's holy and just. Because you see, this rich man had already made his choice about eternity before entering eternity. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey here to everyone in that crowd. That you cannot renegotiate your eternal standing once you're in eternity. By then it's too late. By then the nail has already been sealed in your coffin, so to speak. By then there is an irreversible choice that has already been made. And the rich man is brought to that stark reality that you cannot renegotiate what has already been decided. So the rich man pivots in Jesus' story and he begs Abraham, okay, do something for my brothers. Notice he says, verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers. So then he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You see, he's begging. He's begging, please do something for my brothers, my family. I I don't want them to join me. I don't want them to have and experience the same fate that I am now experiencing. This, at first, might sound like a well-meaning thing to ask. It's an honest, humble request, right? Okay, he's just concerned for his family. But actually it's not. Within this rich man's request is actually, I would say, a sneaky accusation of God himself. It's not as humble and honest as it might appear. Watch. Abraham replies, of course, as you know, that there's, there's no need. Why, am I gonna, why would we need to send Lazarus to go back? They have Moses 
and the prophets. Verse 29, notice what he says. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. They have the Bible. Let them hear that. But that wasn't enough. Verse 30. And he said, no. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But Abraham denies him once again. Verse 31. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the story ends with this ominous note that this rich man's brothers likely wouldn't believe even if someone resurrected. You see, in the story, Abraham refuses to entertain this idea, entertain this plan to send dead poor Lazarus back from the dead as some sort of resurrected evangelist of some kind, as if, as if that's a better method of revelation than the one that God has already preserved and established. You see, that's what the rich man is asking for. That's what he's really trying to say. That's what he's really conveying by this request. That actually God and his plan of revealing how dead people can be saved into eternity of everlasting life. That God's plan for doing that is actually not sufficient. It's actually, it's not, it's not good enough. His unbelief and entitlement is on full display How? He's insisting that his way of telling others about eternity is better than God's way. And even while he's burning in anguish and he's dismissing the words of Abraham and he's finally saying that God's word is not enough. By insisting, by stubbornly saying no. They need something more than the scriptures. They need something more than Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? He's saying that, that the God's message of divine redemption revealed in his word that has been preserved from the beginning of time, that's inadequate. It's not cutting it. It's not good enough. You see what Jesus is trying to get to the heart of everyone there in that crowd. The ultimate meaning of this story is concerned with the sufficiency of the word of God more than anything else. The rich man, again, remember, he calls out. Notice he calls Abraham who? Father Abraham. Which, as I take it, is sort of suggesting the fact that he was familiar at least a little bit with the Bible. He knew about Abraham and he knew a little about the story and about all the, all the great uh, feats that Abraham accomplished. He had perhaps been to synagogue a couple of times. Jesus is insinuating this, I think, with the story that he's familiar with Father Abraham. He's a fil- familiar enough to call him Father. He's not unfamiliar with the law and the prophets. He's not unfamiliar with what God's word says. He, like many even today, just refused to believe it for himself. His heart was too set on what he had, on what he possessed, on what he thought he was entitled to. You see, again, we have to notice the rich man's biggest problem was not his finances, nor was it even his lack of concern for the poor. That's a huge problem, don't mistake me. 
One of, the, one of the side, I think, applications of the story is just noticing the fact that this man who had everything didn't even take a, a minute, a second of thought to care for the poor man that was just outside his door. This gets to the heart of what Jesus says back uh, further later in Luke chapter 22 where he's talking about, um, about loving your neighbor as yourself. And this man couldn't even do that. But you see, the biggest problem of all for this rich man was not his wealth per se, but his sufficiency in his wealth. The rich man's sufficiency for what he was hoping to experience when his time came, when his time to enter into eternity came, his sufficiency, the thing that he was banking on wasn't God, wasn't what revealed in the scriptures, wasn't what Moses and the prophets said, it was what he had. It was what he thought he was entitled to. It was something other than what the word of God, the word of the living God revealed. He was secure in and of himself. He was sure in and of himself that he was going to make it. And you see, for the Pharisees, this story was about to unfold right in front of their very eyes. Who more than they? had poured over the words of Scripture. And in fact, part of what makes the Pharisees who they were is that they, had, they were those who had put the words of Moses and some of the prophets to memory. They knew them inside and out. And yet what was being revealed, what was being exposed, they were sufficient in and of themselves. They were still like this rich man. Finding their security in themselves and what they possessed and what they thought they they were entitled to. Little did they know that they were talking to one who was about to rise from the dead as God's ultimate revelation of his power to save men from sin. They were talking to that man right in their midst. And as it says back in verse 14, they were ridiculing him. Little did they realize that they were mocking the very one who was the fulfillment, who was the embodiment of all the things that were contained in Moses and the prophets. They were talking to him right in front of their faces was the very one who was coming to fulfill everything that those words prophesied about. Jump with me ahead to my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, and I don't say that lightly, Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 44. Luke 24, 44, because here I think Jesus gives us a great amount of insight into precisely, I think, what he's talking about. This, of course, occurs after the resurrection, after uh, that, that moment in which he has greeted the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's appearing before all of his apostles. And he's coming and greeting them, about to send them out as those who would start his church. Notice verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Notice that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ 
should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What's the Bible about? You can give a Sunday school answer. It's about Jesus. (laughs) Jesus says that. Luke 24 is my favorite chapter in all the Bible. Why? Because tell Jesus, tell, you want to know how to read your Bible? Go to Luke 24. How do you read it? You read it with an eye on knowing that everything that's written in it concerns him. It's all about him. That's not a, an oversimplification. That's not to make the Bible sort of reductive. That's Jesus thereby declaring what the Bible is all about. You read the law of Moses. You read all of the prophets. You read all of the Psalms. And all of them tend towards, towards revealing me. They tend towards revealing who I am. I am God's only sent redeemer. I have come to redeem men from their sins by being their death and resurrection. This is what all the Bible reveals. If you know anything about me and you know a little bit about what I believe, I believe that more with anything in me than almost anything else. That if you go from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, what do we find? We find a story of how God saves people from their sins. That's what the Bible's about. Yes, it contains history, and yeah, it contains poetry, and yeah, it contains this, that, and the other thing. And there's moral stories, and there's lessons that we should apply. But you know the biggest application of Scripture? You can't save yourself, but there's one who can. You want to know who he is? It's Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of God. And every single page you turn to reveals that. It is guiding you, ushering you to see that. Oh, I would have loved to have been in Luke 24, that awesome Bible study where Jesus is, I love that phrase, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This light bulb goes off in every apostle's mind. I get it now. You're the one. You're the one that all of this is talking about. You're the one that all of this applies to. You're the one that all of this reveals. You see, the story of Dives and Lazarus, the story of this rich man and this poor man who entered in eternity, is very much like the story of the rest of the Bible in miniature. What does the Bible reveal to us? It reveals who God helps and how does God help us. He always comes close to those who can't help themselves. He comes close to Lazarus's. You know, that's a, that's a fallacy, and I've heard people say it before. In the Bible, it says that God helps those who help themselves. Flatly false. No. God precisely helps those who cannot help themselves. That's what the Bible shows us. That's what the Bible reveals to us. And what person more than Lazarus in this story could not help himself? He's saying that's precisely who I've come to redeem and save and help. Those like Lazarus who cannot help themselves. It turns out you see that whatever you think you're entitled to. Whatever you think you're banking on. 
Your only hope for an eternity of comfort is in realizing that you deserve nothing. And indeed, the fate of your soul, the fate of your eternity rests on what you do with this word in front of you. Both the written one and the incarnate one, Jesus, who is the word become flesh. If you ignore it, you risk an eternity of unrelenting anguish, just like this rich man in our story. Believe it, and you're welcomed into an eternity of comfort at the side of not just Abraham, but of God himself. You see, this morning we're searching for ways that we can be sure of how do I know I'm going to make it? How do I know if I'm going to go to the place of comfort or the place of anguish? How can I know? You already have all you need right in front of you, right here. That's what this is supposed to tell us. If you're struggling with where you're going to go when you die and you have had thoughts, tormenting thoughts of this idea that you are going to close your eyes here and wake up in anguish, my friend, there is good news to be had. And that's what this whole book is about. All 66 books, every single author is meant to get into our mind's eyes that there is good news to be had. That there is those who cannot help themselves, but God sent a divinely appointed Redeemer to help precisely those who cannot help themselves. And praise be to God, that's Jesus Christ. That's what this whole thing's about. This whole thing is good news for you and me who are nothing who are nothing more than just a Lazarus. And yet sometimes I think we feel like we're the rich man. We're entitled. And we go about our daily lives without a thought, without a care for the things of God or the things of those who are around us. My friends, this is the all-important words of God. There is an eternity at stake. Don't let the things of this world distract you into thinking that there's, no, uh, there's nothing else after death. I think the world would love for you to believe that. They, they want to distract you by all kinds of good things, all kinds of other things. They want you to be distracted by the idea that this life, this is all there is. So you better live it up now. You better have all that you can get now. This is what we're living for. My friends, that's false. That's a false notion. If you're living for the here and now, my friends, you're no better than this rich man who thought he was entitled. And he entered into eternity unbelieving. There is an eternity. And the way to be secure about it is right here in these words of God. The way to be secure about it is to believe who it reveals. It reveals the Redeemer of God, the Son of God, the Christ of God, Jesus, who has come to save you from your sin, to save you from eternal death. That's what he's done. For every single person in this room, for every single person in the world, that's what he's done. The weight of the gospel is the precise fact that there are none that are outside of its saving reach. And yet there are still some who go into eternity unbelieving. That's what should make us so sad. We shouldn't be sad when we see sinners sin. We should be sad when we see sinners rejecting the truth. 
rejecting the embrace of God. The chapter, I'm going off script, but it's okay, this is extra, this is bonus. Chapter 15, that's what he's telling us. That's what he's trying to convey to us. That my gospel is so wide, my grace is so strong, that I want to snatch out even the lost. The lost, the marginalized, the outcast, those who are running away. I am come to seek them, precisely them. And yet there are still those who enter into eternity without a thought, without a care, without a passing moment in which they realize that they have already sealed their fate. My friends, this morning, don't walk out those doors until you know for certain. And I'm telling you this morning, you can know for certain that your eternity is secure. How? By seeing the one who is revealed by Moses and the prophets. By seeing and knowing and believing the one who has come to save you who cannot help yourself. That's Jesus, the Savior. Let us pray.